Have you read the back of the bulletin? If you forget, go ahead and come on in, and you can prayer condition this room for those of us who will come in at the proper time. Also on the bulletin this morning, several other announcements I want to bring to your attention. Uh, there's a flyer from the Salvation Army looking for seasonal volunteers, opportunities to bless uh, people in our community and to bless the Salvation Army. Uh, take a moment to read through that. And if that's something that uh, ministers to you and it looks like an opportunity for you to represent faith family in the community, along with the Salvation Army, uh, follow all the directions they give you. And then uh, Thanksgiving is just a few days away. And the Mary Martha group planning on giving out some dinners uh, again this year. And they have a orange sheet in the flyer and the bulletin this morning. If you can help by providing some of these um, things to go along with the turkey that they're providing. And uh, you can bring those in over the next couple of Sundays. And appreciate it. They plan to fill 32 baskets. Also in the bulletin today is a note from Grace International, International Ministries, more commonly called missionaries, and Slavic Kravchuk sends a note and uh, talking about what is going on in the Ukraine, and then Skip and Debbie Rodert in Brazil asking you to join with them in prayer in regards to the election that's taking place in Brazil and some crazy things going on in that nation. You thought, well, I won't say that. And then... Uh, I want to encourage you, you should have gotten a uh, ballot in the mail this last week, sometime, and uh, you need to get that filled out, prayerfully fill that out, use uh, the right that has been given to us in this democratic republic to cast our vote, and to do it prayerfully. If you've not registered to vote, you have one more day. You can do it tomorrow. There's several ways to do that. And uh, appreciate everybody exercising that right to vote. I'm not telling you what to vote, but use your, use your right to vote. Okay? I got four amens. It's good to be home. Good to be with you this morning. I was with you last Sunday. Um, I'll say more about that in a moment. I want to start by sharing an article written by an Ann Perrin, recorded in a book called True Love, Stories Told to and by Robert Fulgham. And I quote, Anne writes, it was over four years ago that I invited my mother for a visit. She loved to travel. Knowing that my 83-year-old father would no longer agree to travel anywhere from their California home. But she declined kindly, saying, no, he would never leave me. How prophetic those words. It was only a few months later when my mother was devastated by a severe stroke, leaving her paralyzed, unable to speak non-responsive to our questions, but usually aware of my sisters and my visits, and most especially of my dad. She now smiles at us when we arrive, and often during visits and sometimes at our little jokes and family stories. But she's unable to in any way care for herself, uh, 
and has been in a nursing home ever since the stroke. And so has my father. Not as a resident there, but as a daily, without fail, visitor. Most every day he's there feeding her, massaging her wasted muscles, reading to her, telling her of any news from distant friends and family, giving her back rubs, singing little songs, showing her family photo albums, watching over her in every way he can to help her be more comfortable. My dad is 88 now. He's become a legend in the nursing home because of his devotion. He's been with my mother every day since that terrible evening, the night before their 59th wedding anniversary. She knows. You can tell from the way she looks at him that he would never leave her, as she wasn't willing to leave him either, even for a short family visit. So this is what my dad, Raymond Doyen, has taught me about devotion and caring, and compassion, and love, and duty. He's never been one to give advice, only the example of his life. Annie Jory Doyen Perrin, at that time living in Tucson, Arizona. I share that story this morning because of the way it fits with what we're going to read again from 1 John chapter 3, an epistle that John wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. I share that story because of how well Anne told her story. I could share a very similar story from our family, as my mother's father did the very same thing for my grandma when she became mentally incapacitated. First it was physical, broke a hip, but then dementia set in to the point where she could no longer speak at all, hardly communicate, didn't recognize most of us most of the time. She spent her last years in the Manor Nursing Home where my grandpa would be there every day doing just what the other man did until they decided, well, you can just move into the room with her because you're here every day anyway. He served her every day. It's all he did in the latter years of his life. Unfortunately, he passed before she did, and she spent those last years in that room with an occasional visitor. But that commitment of love, giving up the rights, your freedom to serve an individual you love. Love in action. Love in action. I started to say a moment ago, I was with you last Sunday morning via computer from Montana and watched the service. The people running the video and audio can tell you which service I was watching. As I was communicating with them for several minutes, I'm very grateful for Tony and the message he shared with you last Sunday morning from 1 John chapter 3. Even though he made reference more than once to how long I preach and how long he doesn't <laughs> preach. But he gave you a great word to take a hold of and to put into practice. In my opinion, 1 John chapter 3 contains some of the most important words that John has to say as he has been going round and round in this circle creating 
a bigger and bigger um, principles for us to, to grab a hold of. And this morning, I want to share from the same passage of Scripture that Tony shared with this understanding that the, Holy, that the Scripture is a whole lot like a diamond. Cut, and as you turn a diamond in the light, as you look at the different sides of it, you'll see different light that is broken. It'll have a totally different look. Same diamond. Same truth. But just a little bit different perspective. And so this morning, um, and by the, anyway, Tony didn't talk long enough to cover it all, so I have to. <laughs> Before we read the text again this morning, I just want to make a couple comments. One of the main themes of this short little letter or long sermon that John gives is fellowship. It's fellowship, koinonia, sharing life together, doing life together, fellowship. And we understand from chapter 1 that this fellowship is on two levels. We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with God, communion with God, intimacy with God. We, we get to be part of the family of God. We're doing life. He said, the life I, Paul said, the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who lives where? In me. In me. On the second plane, we have fellowship with each other. We have fellowship with each other. As we read the apostles' writings of the, in the New Testament, whether you're talking about Paul or, or Peter or James or the book of Hebrews, whoever wrote that, we come to this understanding that together we are the body of Christ. Members in particular, held together by this love that God has given to us. We are told that we are the family of God, heirs with Christ, joint heirs with Christ. We're God's children. John wants us to know you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have fellowship with God without having fellowship with each other. And we really can't do life together without fellowship with God because he's the one that gives us the common denominator, our salvation, our adoption into his family, fellowship with God and with each other. You can't have one without the other. Yesterday, I was going through my emails that I had not looked at for a few days. It took me quite a while. I got a, a, an article that I didn't read the whole article uh, written by uh, a Baptist preacher in Grand Cayman Islands. And the short article was this. The title is, A Category You Won't Find in the Bible. Semicolon. The Churchless Christian. A category you won't find in the Bible. The Churchless Christian. He went on to say it is important for Christians to be members of a local church because the New Testament apostles can't conceive of anything called a Christian that's not connected to Christ 
body. He goes on to point out Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12 about where the body, each member in particular. Ephesians chapter 4, God gave us all of these people that we might grow together into the likeness of Christ. He concluded the short article with this, God's plan A for our discipleship and growth is the local church. And he doesn't have a plan B. Fellowship with God and with each other. You cannot have one without the other. Let's read chapter 3, verse 11 through 24. And I know you read it last week, but I don't think you memorized it, so we'll read it again. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. First note, love is foundational to our Christian faith. Love is foundational to our Christian faith faith. The message you heard from the beginning, love one another. He's talking about the beginning of the church. When Jesus said to the eleven in the upper room, I'm going to go away, but I leave you a new commandment. We are given the standard of measure for love. We are given the standard of measure for love. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. John says, now we are to do the same thing. To lay down our lives for one another. That's the measure. That's the standard. To lay down our lives for one another. 
When he says in verse 16, you ought to do this, he's not saying, well, you know, that might be a good thing to do. It's a good suggestion. That's the way we use the word ought. That's not, the, that's not what he's saying here. This word ought means you have a debt to pay. You have a debt to pay. What you and I owe Jesus is to lay down our lives for each other. And it doesn't mean for us to die because he already died for all of us. He means for us to put aside our self-centeredness and our selfishness. Jesus in the upper room said in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. It just occurs to me as I'm reading that again. How lovable were those 12 guys that met around that table? You remember reading the four Gospels and the stories? One time Jesus said, how long must I be with you? His frustration. They didn't quite catch it as quickly as... He said, love one another just as I've loved you. And if you go to John 21, after that night and the crucifixion and the resurrection, and he restores Peter. Peter, who denied knowing him, three, not once, but three times, vehemently. But Jesus loved him anyway. Love one another as I have loved you. In the most sacred relationship between human beings, the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, a relationship that is intended to be a small picture of the great wedding of Christ and his church, the union of Christ with his body, Love is all about laying down one's life for their spouse. Now I know it says, husbands, you're the head of the house. And here's how you show yourself to be the head of the house. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, submit to your husbands and see to it that you respect them. It's mutual laying down our life. Mutual submission. That's what it called for. Had this mind that Christ had, obedient to the Father, equal with the Father, but he laid all that aside to be obedient to the plan. He said to husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit yourself or lay down your life to serve your husband. That's a whole other sermon, but it's wrapped up in this laying down our life. Read the description of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
That's the kind of love he's talking about here, that agape love goes beyond just, you know, you're my brother physically, you're my good friend and I love you. We get along good. We do the same kinds of things. Agape love. Let me summarize that chapter and this command here to love one another in just a few short... One sentence I'm going to keep compounding. Love is giving yourself. Love is giving yourself. God so loved the world that he... You can talk. God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? Everything he had to give. Himself. Via his son. But remember, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. God died. He gave himself. Love is giving yourself for the good of others. For the good of others. Now, occasionally people will give of themselves or give of their stuff to somebody else with an ulterior motive because there's something to be gained for themselves. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. Love is giving yourself for the good of others. The good of others. It's acting in their best interest. That's what God did for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, he didn't do it because we were just so lovely. He did it because we were so needy. The only way for us to be saved was for him to do it. The third addendum to our sentence. Love is giving yourself for the good of others, even for those with whom you have differences. Love is giving yourself for the good of others, even for those with whom you have differences. Remember, Jesus died for you while you were a sinner. Vaughn Roberts, a pastor from Oxford, put it this way. When you love people who like you, that's ordinary. When you love people who are unlike you, that's extraordinary. When you love people who dislike you, that's revolutionary. That's the kind of love that John is talking about in 1 John 3.16. Because that's the kind of love that Jesus modeled for us. Here's the deal. As the result of our fellowship... Our relationship with Jesus and the Father. There will be an inflow and an outflow of love. He will fill our hearts with his love. And the purpose of filling our hearts with his love is to let that love go. To put it out. We have this, his life flowing through us. His life living in us. And when we allow his love to flow through us, we will be moved with compassion like Jesus was moved with compassion. We will see people in need as Jesus saw people in need. God will help us to be his hand extended, reaching out to those around us. One of the ways, John says, that we know that we're born again, one of the ways we know our life has been changed, is not only did we say 
nice words about love, but we begin to do actions that speak of love. We begin to do actions that speak of love. In the 18th verse we just read, he exhorts us, he encourages us, he's pleased with us. Love in actions and in truth. Love in actions and in truth. Love in deeds and in truth, depending on which translation you're reading. The cliche comes to my mind, put your money where your mouth is. Put it into practice. James, in his letter, said, faith without works is dead. It's dead. And that's what John is saying about love. It must be displayed by the way we live. Love is at the center of what Christianity is all about. I haven't said it for quite a while, but if you've been here for a few years, you've heard me say it numerous times that Christianity is not a religion. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you make it a religion, I'm not sure it'll get you where you want to go, and you'll find it boring and laborious. But when you understand it's a relationship with the living God who loves you so much, and He walks with you and talks with you and tells you that you're His own, it's a way of living life to the full. And everyone said? Amen. Christianity is about love in the, both dimensions of the cross. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I came across a question one writer pro, uh, posed in, in light of what John tells us in 1 John 3.16. Here's the question. Is the word Christian a noun or a verb? Is the word Christian a noun or a verb? I didn't read the rest of the article, but I got the drift of where I think he was going to go with the article. It has to be both. It has to be both. If it's not both, John said, I'm not sure you've been born again. If I'm not a person actively doing actions and loving other members of the body of Christ, John questions the validity of my claim using Christian as a noun. Reading again verse 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children. He keeps coming back to this. Little children. Heart of a father. The heart of a shepherd. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. 
Why is love so important? It's not in your notes, but hopefully you know the answer. I'll give you a biblical answer. John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another, that the body of Christ loves each other. Does that mean we agree on everything? Probably not. John Maxwell said, if two of us agree about everything, one of us is not necessary. But in spite of what we disagree about, we do agree about this. Jesus Christ is my Savior. I, my sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, and He's my only hope and the only way to heaven. And we're doing this journey together. And everybody said, Amen. We'll come back to love when we get to chapter 4. I promise. I told you, He teaches in circles spiral staircase and we're going to come back to it but I wanted to point out just a few things from the latter part of this chapter beginning in verse 19 benefits that we realize in our life as a result of a life of real fellowship with Jesus the first benefit the assurance of who we are and where we stand the assurance of who we are and where we stand Verse 19 said this, By this shall we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. We know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. The NIV puts it this way, This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. I've, I've looked at this verse and the verse surrounding it, and I think I know what John is trying to get across. But before I give my interpretation, let me give you a few important truths that every once in a while I remind you of. Letter A, we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. God's unmerited favor. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But God gave it to us anyway. We receive that grace by faith. By faith. It wasn't a matter of doing a whole bunch of good things and God said, okay, I'll give you my grace. It was by faith in Jesus Christ. Let her see that faith is a gift from God. That faith is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2. No man is saved by works lest he boast. But we're saved by grace through faith. And that faith is what Christ gave to us. Letter D. I'm a child of God, not because of what I feel, but because of what the Word of God says. I am a child of God, not because of what I feel, but because of what the Word of God says. I thank God for those moments that I feel like a child of God. Anyone else have moments when you don't quite feel like a child of God? That's when the enemy coming to accuse you. I'm a child of God because I put my faith in Jesus Christ and His Word. 
What John says to me in verse 19 is this, one of the tangible proofs that I have indeed become a child of God is there will be an outflow of his love from my life. One of the tangible proofs that I have indeed become a child of God is there will be an outflow of his love from my life. I will put his words into action. There will be a desire within me to please him and fulfill his commands. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Because I'm in fellowship with him, because I belong to him, my desire will be to love people, to share life with brothers and sisters. And this love is active. It brings us to an assurance of this. Sure enough, God's at work in my life. God's at work in my life. If that person would have done that to me before I met Christ, there would have been a whole different story. Anybody relate to that? You know that God is at work in your life because you have seen, you have seen a transformation of the way you respond to life around you. I know that I'm on the right track. I know I'm part of a group associated with truth. Notice that he says, we know. We know. We know. Not I hope so. Not I guess so. Not even I pray so. We know. There comes a quality of fellowship with Jesus, of sharing of his life and his love that fills our heart with the assurance that enables us to say, I know. I know I belong to him, and he belongs to me. To be able to say like the Apostle Paul when he wrote to Timothy, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Look at verse 19 and 20 one more time. By this we shall know that we are in the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. John talks to about our conscience. How to put your conscience to rest. The way to do that is by faithfully living out your fellowship with Jesus Christ. To walk in obedience to his direction. And to love as he taught and he commanded. <coughs> when he speaks about your heart. He's talking about that inner part of our being that judges whether an action is right or wrong, place where we make our decisions. Our conscience, that part that judges whether or not we've kept the law of God. And so the second benefit of fellowship with Jesus, of sharing life with Jesus is this, a clear conscience. A clear conscience. Quick poll. Show of hands. How many of you have ever had a guilty conscience? You did something wrong and you knew it. Almost everybody raised their hand. The other people must be asleep. We're familiar with this feeling of a condemnation. Paul said in Romans 8, chapter 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Some manuscripts go on to say, who do not live according to sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. As we live in fellowship with Jesus, according to the guidelines that John laid out for us in this chapter, openly and honestly, chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Though we may not be perfect people, and we will not be perfect people until we see Jesus, there is something in our heart that is open and honest before God all the time. And I can come into his presence with confidence because I'm not trying to hide anything with God. We can say to the condemnation that our conscience would pile upon us, it's under the blood. He said, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of all sin. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. It's under the blood. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Third verse of Spafford's hymn, It is well with my soul. Focus for a minute on the phrase in verse 20. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. In case you don't know it, I know I've told you before if you've been here, our consciences are not infallible. We cannot always trust our heart. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. We cannot always rely on our conscience as our sole guide for living. Some of the worst crimes in history were done with the sanction of somebody's good conscience. Take the man Saul of Tarsus, for example. His conscience said, I need to serve God by doing away with these people of the way. These people who believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died and that he rose from the grave. These people are crazy. We've got to get rid of them, so let's arrest them. I, I, I think we should even execute them. We need to eradicate them from the planet. He did that with good conscience. Amen? A Pharisee of the Pharisee. Devoted to the Scriptures. Devoted to Yahweh. But he was so messed up. He was so absolutely wrong. And Jesus pointed it out to him in a most dramatic fashion as he had that encounter on the road to Damascus. So, your conscience is not always a trustworthy gauge. Sometimes it's partial. Sometimes it allows things it would not allow if it were totally pure. 1977, Debbie Boone had a song that was at the top. Some of you remember that song because she only had one that went to the top, I think. You light up my life. 
And on and on it went. Beautiful, beautiful melody. And some people thought that it was talking about Jesus Christ. But the bridge at the end messed up the whole thing. In fact, I sang it at a few weddings and I wouldn't sing the bridge. Because the bridge says, It can't be wrong when it feels so right. Oh, baloney. Proverbs talks about stolen fruit is so sweet. It feels good for a moment. The ultimate guide for our lives is not our conscience. It's not opinion. It's the Word of God. That's not in your notes anywhere, but you need to put that on your forehead. The ultimate guide for our lives is not our conscience. It's not opinion. It's the Word of God. When we allow our heart and our conscience to be filled with the Word of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit, He becomes our helper in judging whether or not we are living according to the Word. John said, God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Let me paraphrase that this way. Our hearts are not perfect. Our hearts are not perfect. But God is. Our hearts are not perfect, but God is. That's what he's saying. God is totally righteous, totally holy. He's greater than our heart. He knows everything. These words can be good or bad, depending on what you're doing with your life today, I suppose. John intended for these words to be a source of comfort. A source of comfort for people living in fellowship with Jesus Christ. People living out that desire to please the Father. Again, I say he knows our heart. He knows we're not perfect. But because he sees our heart. Remember, David was a man after God's own heart. And yet he committed adultery and committed murder and was a, not a very good dad. But yet he kept coming back to the Lord, asking God for his grace and for his forgiveness. Romans 8, Paul asks a question, who is it that condemns us? Who is it that condemns us? He said, is it God who sent his son to die in our place? Is he the one who condemns us? And what was his answer? That can't be. Is it Jesus who gave his life for us? Is he the one who condemns us? Paul says, no way. God is, not out to, God is out to save us, not condemn us. I do want you to know this, though. God has sent his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to convict us of our sins. To convict us of our sins. Now, when I use that word, convict, to point out our sin. To speak into your heart, there's an area that you need to repent of. There's an area of disobedience or lack of obedience. It's an area where you're allowing your flesh to rule instead of the spirit. You cannot continue to grow if you continue to allow that to go on in this area of your life because it's sin. He will come and convict you. He will speak into your life in some way to prick your conscience in regard to a certain activity. He comes to convict, 
not condemn. There is a difference. He comes to bring holy conviction and not condemnation. I want to give you the... You got a little chart on your page and because of space I wasn't able to make it real pretty. But I want to go through this. How do I know if I'm being convicted by the Holy Spirit or condemned by the other guy? Number one, conviction. God working with us through the Spirit. Conviction is God working with us through the presence and the voice of the Holy Spirit. Condemnation, number one on that list, is this. That's Satan accusing you. That's Satan accusing you. The scripture calls him the accuser. He comes to accusers. Accuse us before God. Accuse us before ourself. He comes to accuse. Number two. The Holy Spirit comes with conviction to attack the problem. Attacks the problem. What you said was not the truth. What you said was a lie. That wasn't right. Condemnation, Satan comes and just says, he attacks the person. He attacks, you're a liar, and always will be a liar. You'll never change. You, it's impossible for you to change. Can a leopard change his spots? No, a leopard can't change his spots. That's who you are. And he accuses you that you're, you're hopelessly lost in the sin that has got a hold of you, and you can't get out. He attacks you, tears you down. Number three. Conviction is concerned. The Holy Spirit comes, and I'm concerned about its effect on myself and on others around me. Concerned about the effect of this choice that I've made that I shouldn't be doing on myself and on others. Condemnation, the only thing that Satan brings to your mind is you worry about being punished or about getting caught. You worry about being punished or getting caught. Now I've seen lots of kids cry because they got caught. They really weren't concerned about others. They really weren't concerned about repenting. They just didn't want to get punished. And Satan will cause you to hide and to run lest you be punished or get caught. Condemnation. Condemnation. Number four, the Holy Spirit comes and convicts you that you need to repent. You need to turn from what you're doing and go the other direction. You need to repent. Satan comes with condemnation and accuses you and said, you just might as well rebel. Just rebel. Just go ahead and do it. You can't change anyway. Retreat. Retreat. Leave the church. Don't ever hang out with church people anymore because you're hopelessly lost. He uses that comparing your thing to others and to keep you locked in condemnation. Number five, the good thing about the Holy Spirit when he comes to convict you, there's always the message of restoration. There's always the message of restoration. This is not the end. Your mistakes are not fatal. 
because the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you and make you whole. Satan comes and he accuses you and he, call, he said, alienation, just leave. This isn't going to work for you. This isn't truth. You're just a hypocrite. Just isolate yourself from everybody. Alienation. Nobody loves you. Anybody heard that voice? Nobody cares about you. Nobody loves you. Just go eat worms. Big, fat, juicy ones. I don't remember the rest of the poem. It is a poem. Number six. The conviction of the Holy Spirit comes with comfort. It comes with comfort. The comfort is this. God loves me. God loves me. And he's at work in my life to bring transformation. God loves me. And he wants to make sure I stay in the fold. God cares. Jesus said, I'll send a comforter. A comforter. A comforter. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. Condemnation will leave you depressed. <laughs> It'll take you down a spiral staircase. I'm hopeless. There's no way out. I want you to know that Jesus has an elevator to bring you up. When you confess, when you repent, I spent longer than that I intended, but you'll forgive me, right? Walking with Jesus sets us free from condemnation, which leads to power in prayer. It leads to power in prayer. 1 John 3, 21, 22. Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. If you're in your Bible, flip over to the 5th chapter, 14th verse. And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. John 16, 23 says this, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Chapter 14, verse 13 and 14 of John. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There is great power in prayer that flows out of a life in fellowship with Jesus. You can come to a place in your relationship where you have the assurance that every time that you pray, you'll get what you ask for because you're not asking out of the context of who you are, but out of the context of who He is. God is not a vending machine. You drop in the appropriate amount of money, push the button, and out comes your prayer answer, a miracle of your choice. We're not talking about praying your wildest whims and tacking the name of Jesus on the end of that, presto. What we're talking about is a relationship, fellowship with Jesus, where my desires are no longer self-centered and selfish, but my desire is the desire that Jesus had. God, I want your will to be done. 
To pray in Jesus' name means to pray what Jesus would pray. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray what Jesus would pray. I know some people want you to believe it's a blank check that Jesus has signed and you just fill in the blank. I don't see it that way. I see it when I come into an agreement with what Jesus and his kingdom purpose is. I have this assurance in my heart. He's going to answer my prayer. You see, to pray in Jesus' name means to come in agreement with his word. To come into agreement with his word. John 15, 7, I mentioned it. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abide in him. Remain in him. It's all about relationship, fellowship with Jesus. John in this context is telling us that when we're in right fellowship, there's an inner confidence when we come to prayer. Because my heart does not con condemn me. An inner assurance that my prayers are not in vain. A confidence that the Lord has inclined his ear to my cry when we know that we're living in obedience to his commands. Verse 23 of 1 John 3 says this, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. This is his commandment, letter A, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. There's a great deal of theology in that one sentence, as three titles are specifically mentioned in regards to who he is, the object of our faith, Son, Jesus Christ. It may be simplistic for me to say this, but I must. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You cannot be a Christian in noun or verb unless you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If someone tells you anything less, they're a false teacher. They're a heretic. John calls them antichrist. The only way to go to heaven is to believe in Jesus Christ. To believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. Christ means the anointed one, the chosen one, the sent one. He's the one the Father promised would come to deliver us. He said, you'll call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. First commandment is to believe in Jesus. The second command, love one another as he has commanded us. Love one another as he has commanded us. There are a lot of groups that stress this point. There are many cults built around the concept of love for one another. But you have to have both. Believe in Jesus as a son of God and to love one another. Thank you. You have to have both. If you don't have both, your prayers will be hindered. Verse 24. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it 
by the Spirit He gave us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. I want to read that to you from the Amplified Bible. I put it in your notes. The Amplified Bible gives you um, all kinds of options of the way they could have translated the verse. It puts some things in parentheses and those kind of things. But he said, in the Amplified Bible, they wrote it this way, All who keep his commandments, who obey his orders and follow his plan, live and continue to live, to stay and abide in him, and he in them. They let Christ be a home to them, and they are a home of Christ. And by this we know and understand and have proof that he really lives and makes his home in us, by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. We have this incredible benefit of fellowship with Jesus Christ and that we have the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us. He said on the upper room, it's expedient for you that I go away because if I go away, I'll send another comforter and he will not just be with you. He will be in you. He will be your helper. He'll be your paraclete is the Greek word. He will be in you. Jesus told those folks who gathered with him on the Mount of Olives when he got the final call to go back to heaven. And just before he ascends in front of them, he said to them these words. Earlier in the chapter, he said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait till you be endued with power. But verse 8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You'll be my witnesses. Go back to John 13, 35. How will the world know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ? By our love for one another. How do we love one another? How do we live with a clear conscience? It's because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit comes to give us power to be a witness to the reality that Jesus Christ is alive and well. As a fickle, weak human being, I can't carry out the command to love one another and to love God very many days in a row. But by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me, I can do it every day. And here's the thing. Though the Holy Spirit is God, you need to understand that. He is God. All-powerful. He could make you do anything he wants you to do. But he won't. He won't. Unlike the devil, 
who would do everything he can to oppress you and possess you. The Holy Spirit waits for us to surrender control to him. The Holy Spirit waits for us to surrender control to him. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I'm told if you look at that in the original Greek language, and if you're a Greek scholar, you would understand, be continually filled with the Spirit, continually under the influence of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Not under the influence of the spirits you get in a bottle, but under the influence of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Paul spoke in Romans about the struggle that takes place in our lives. We're born again, but we still carry around this old person, this flesh, not totally redeemed. We're still vulnerable to temptation. However, Jesus has given to us the Holy Spirit to empower us, to empower us to love, to empower us to walk in obedience. But it takes my cooperation. It takes me saying every day, Holy Spirit, have your way in me. Holy Spirit, make me an instrument of your grace and your peace. Holy Spirit, I choose again today to allow you to sit on the throne in my heart. Today, Holy Spirit, Guide my words today. Guide my thoughts. May my thoughts be acceptable. My words be acceptable in your sight. Holy Spirit, help me to hear you above all the other voices that I may hear today. Holy Spirit, flow through me. Holy Spirit, what I want you to do is have your 